I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 12 to 17 this morning. The sermon is entitled, A Life and Heart at Peace. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Today we're continuing our series, This Summer Being Still in the Busy, and we're considering the peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts and in our lives. We began this series, believe it or not, at the end of May, with the hope and the aim that it would aid you and aid us together as a church family to be still before the living God. So I want to begin by asking you just for a moment, how are you today? How are you really? How is it with your soul? May the Lord grant us grace in this hour to abide with him. Not simply just to be here, to sit here, to endure, but to be here with him. As we read this text, we should stand back in awe at the massive realities that we just read. We should agree with the psalmist who says in Psalm 139, verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. By God's mercy, this is a wonderful place to be. How tragic it would be for each of us this morning to read this passage of God's word, to read words like forgive others or put on love or be meek or gentle, to look back at it, to measure it up a bit, to look at ourselves and say, okay, I've got this. I can do that. We don't. And we're not even close. In our own strength, we read this passage, we can't do it. It's not possible. Put on tender mercies, meekness, love, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These are things we can't do apart from God's grace. Can you consider just for a moment? Consider that we, us, the real us, the one you see in the mirror, the one you wake up with in the morning, wretched, self-absorbed, sinful creatures, that we could have peace with Almighty God, the High and the Holy One. And that He gives us, He delights to give you every day 
abundant grace to live in light of His providence that He is bringing to pass in every part of your life. It should stop us in our tracks. As I read those verses this morning, you should be looking up thinking, Who, me? That's about me? Those words are about my life? I want to read just a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Who is sufficient for these things? As the elect, holy and beloved. Did you think about yourself with those words this morning when you got up? When you wiped the sleep out of your eyes, when you combed your hair? That I am the elect, holy and beloved. Almighty God has condescended to me to make me part of his family. It should shake you to your core. And to the degree that it doesn't, you need an awakening You need an awakening to know that you stand in the presence of God. May He give you a glimpse of Himself today and the wealth of the riches that He has poured out to you through His Son. And may you be totally overwhelmed and undone at His blessing. This morning as we look at this passage, I want to do so just looking at some of the high points. We're not going to be able to cover these verses in the time that we have But we're going to look at them under three headings, looking specifically at a few of these verses and the phrases in them. Number one, he says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved in verse 12. Reading this, you should have a big sense of your smallness, a big sense of it. Not just a little bit, but a dose that you almost can't swallow, that you almost choke on. That in God's presence, not just someone's presence, this is God's presence. In his presence, in his world, in which we are not at the center. And I know everything in us tells us every day that the world revolves around us. But if you believe that, you're wrong. The Bible says you are wrong. Have you ever sat outside in the morning and listened during a sunrise? The world is a loud place. There are bugs and birds singing and animals making noises. Have you ever walked outside and just listened? I didn't give approval for all this to happen. Who approved this? Who said they could do this and be up at this time? It certainly wasn't us. Just as Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, were selected out of all the nations of the earth, God could have chosen anyone to be his chosen people. And it wasn't because of anything desirable in Israel. It wasn't because they had the best land or the best military. Out of his own good pleasure and for his own purposes, God chose Israel for his own glory, for his own purposes. He chose them to be his. 
Do you believe that's true? The Bible says that's true about you if you belong to him. You are God's elect, holy and beloved. Not because you have anything to offer God except for your sin. These words, holy and beloved, should have a familiar ring to them. You've seen them before. You've read them before in the Bible. They should sound familiar in your ears because you have heard them. These are God's special words reserved for our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the Holy One. He is the Beloved Son. He is the Chosen One, the long-awaited Messiah, the Redeemer of God's people. You should stand back and breathe that in for a moment. May it wash over you for a moment that the very words of Almighty God used to describe His Son are the words that He uses to describe you, to call out to you. Through His holy inspired word, He calls you chosen, elect of God, holy and beloved. Paul uses those words to talk about you. Is that me? You might say, is it true? Perhaps the first thing we should do as we hear those words, maybe the first thing we should do this morning is repent. You say, well, that's kind of strange. I don't really see that in the logic of this passage. Maybe I I turn to the wrong epistle. They do sound similar. But listen to these words from in the book of Acts. Paul says, excuse me, not Paul. Actually, Peter is speaking here in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted. It means repent and return to the Lord. Come back to Him. In fact, He wasn't the one that moved. If there's distance between you and God, it's because you're not repenting. It's not because He left. If you are His people, repent and return back to Him, He says, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. One of the most hopeful things in that verse is that those who repent by God's grace come into his presence and he promises times of refreshing in his presence. And that means there's nowhere else you can go to be refreshed. Don't waste your time, your money, or your energy. You cannot find it on Google Maps or on Apple. It's not possible Times of refreshing come from being in the presence of the living God. But not by just simply coming and filling a seat in the church. It means by coming and dealing honestly with who you are before the living God. He's the one who calls you holy and beloved. You can't put that name on yourself. And because you didn't put it on yourself, you can't take it off. He has put it on you. And he says, here has the elect of God holy and beloved. Apart from God's grace, we are totally clueless about being at peace with Him. We're convinced that everything about our lives, all the little dots that we connect together, the little things that we see, well, this goes here and that goes there. This person is in my life for this reason. Or God brought this into my life and it must be for this. We're totally clueless about what it means to be at peace with God. We're convinced this life is about us. And he's saying here in this passage, there's so much more going on in your life and in the life of your family. 
in God's covenant goodness and faithfulness. He's working on you now for things that he was doing a generation ago in your family. And he's working on you now for things a generation from now he will receive glory for. Imagine what things your parents or your grandparents struggled through and you, if you were raised in a Christian home and heard the doctrines of grace and the beauty of the gospel and what it means to be at peace with God, you didn't earn that and you didn't fight for it. God was doing it. If you are the elect of God, holy and beloved, you should fall on your face and repent that you don't rejoice in his presence every day. Basking in the beauty of his providence, enjoying his blessings. You don't breathe unless he gives it to you. Praise the Lord. Number two, he says in verses 12 to 16, he tells them, there's something you're supposed to put on Colossians. There's something that you need to wear every day. None of you would run outside without clothes on unless there was some sort of fire. And he's saying, as you go out, as you interact with people, there's certain clothes you need to wear. He says to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Those are the clothes you're supposed to wear. And then he goes down a little bit further and he says, but above all these things, put on love as if it's a belt or an outer coat. Put all these other things on, but this is what holds it together. This is what keeps your life together. This is how you relate to other people in love. This is the predominant theme that has to be singing from your soul in your life. It's how you love people, how you care for them, how you treat them. Are they humans? Are they other people created in the image of God? Or are they a means to an end? The church at Colossae was a mixed bag, to say the least. You can look earlier in chapter 3. There were Jews and there were Greeks. There were barbarians and Scythians. I don't know if you've seen any of those running around in Fairfield County. Probably not. But barbarians and Scythians, they were not cross words to say about people. They weren't derogatory, but the Scythians were people who were hated. They were feared. They were awful people. They murdered just for spite. It was like a sport to them. They were awful. But apparently some of them had heard the beauty of the gospel and the message of the Lord Jesus rang in their hearts and he grabbed them out of the kingdom of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of light and the people in the church were struggling with it. You're telling me the Scythians get to sit on my pew? They're going to heaven with me? They receive the covenant promises? And then he says slave or free. And Paul tells the church that the life they have in Christ, the life that is hidden with Christ in God, that is hard to see, nobody can see, he says earlier in chapter 3. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That there's something about who you are that you cannot see even when you look in the mirror. That there is an eternal life in you that God put there that no one can see and no one can snatch away. And you don't even know yourself yet. 
until you are in eternity with him. There's something about you that will be different when you are in heaven. Sure, there will be things you will recognize yourself, but there are things about you that are different that you don't quite yet see. The Bible says we see through a glass dimly, but when we are with him, we will be like him as he is. So we hope. He tells them that the life they have in Christ transcends all the distinctions All the categories that we try to fit each other into. Are you this or are you that? Are you a Clemson person? Are you a Carolina person? Well, how could you love this team? Or why did you go there? Or really, you're from Virginia? (laughs) I heard that, moving to South Carolina. I was asked once, how do you like the South? I thought I'd always lived in the South. (laughs) And he says in chapter 3, verse 11, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is everything. And he is in all of his people. That's what he's saying. He's not saying Christ is in you and me and the birds and the bees and the trees. He's saying Christ is in all those kinds of people. Even in people who thought they were in the South living in Virginia. The fact that Christ is all should override every prejudice we have that we might have for some group of people or some part of the country. The unity that Christ created among them is to be the greatest reality they live in. That's where I'm supposed to live. I'm not supposed to be enamored with all the differences between us or do you fit that group or this other group or can I fit in with you because we like this about each other or we share this affinity for something else. I should come into the church rejoicing. These are all God's people and I'm going to spend eternity with them. They're my brothers and sisters, my fathers and my mothers in Christ. Praise the Lord. Why would we want to enjoy heaven with one another if we can't enjoy it here now together? That's what he's saying. There should be love of Christ in you. I think one of the things that shouts from this part of the text is that nobody can say they're the center of their own universe. This is God's world. It's for his purposes. He knows why he chose to bring us into his family. And it's his purposes. The secret things, it says, belong to God. They don't belong to us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he calls God's people, the church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, redeemed for his own pleasure, that we might do what? Tell everyone the excellencies of his glory. So the first thing that you hold out, that we hold out together to one another is, brother, sister, I belong to Christ. Brother, sister, you do too. Trust in the Lord, believe in Him. And isn't it wonderful that He says here that we should be telling one another the truth as the Word of God dwells in us richly. We're to be telling one another the truth and singing the truth to each other with psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs making melody to the Lord in our hearts. That one of the ways we pass along our faith is by singing it to one another. Praise the Lord for music. And praise the Lord for the blessing of it here at Lebanon in the gifts that he has given us and blessed us with. Notice though, just for a moment, that Paul hasn't even walked outside of the church It's as if he walked in the door and got hit in the foyer. And he's just seeing faces that are walking in. He's dealing with how does the church love one another? How do we interact with each other well? 
How do we welcome each other well, even as we're coming in? There's a challenge in this text that the way we're to relate to one another, I believe, is to have a melted heart. A melted heart. Look at the specific words that Paul chose for the outfit. I'm calling it an outfit that believers are to wear in verses 12 through 14. Think through those words again. You're supposed to have a melted heart seeing this. Tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, even if someone has a complaint against you. He's not saying, and I'm not saying, sweep offenses under the rug. He's saying that because of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, those can be dealt with actually in the light. We can deal with hurts. We can even deal with church hurts. By His mercy and grace, we can. And there are some of you that have church hurts, and this isn't part of my notes. But some of you have them, and they're deep. And the Lord Jesus is touching them in your life. He will do it in His own time, and He will do it for His glory. But I encourage you not to try to keep your precious. Give your pain to the Lord Jesus. He knows how best to deal with it. And He will for His glory, for your good. All these words that I just read again for the third time, and I did it on purpose, kindness and gentleness, meekness, tender mercies, all of these words describe our precious Lord Jesus Himself. And the graceful ways that He relates to us, both individually, one another, Individually in our homes and also corporately one another here as the church. That's how Jesus interacts and relates to you. That's how he cares for you every day. That's how he looks upon you in your struggles and in your sin and in your hurriedness to try to get life the way that you want it. That's how Jesus relates to you. Listen to these words from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Consider that for just a moment. The person of the Lord Jesus with these words from Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This high and holy one, high and lifted up, who needs nothing, condescends to love you and me as our hearts are broken over our sins, as we come to Him 
empty-handed and naked in His presence. He knows everything about us. And it says that while we were enemies, He decided to clothe Himself in humility and come into this world, put on a body like ours, and be misunderstood, ill-treated, beaten and broken beyond recognition and hang on a cross for you and me and then give up His life for us. He says, I love you. He says that. It's not me trying to force that into the text. He's saying it. That's how I love my people. It's how I care for them. And so when Paul uses these words to talk about the way we relate to relate to one another, what we're supposed to see is that this is how the church is to live together. This is how we're to, to be together as one another. We're to embrace one another as the beloved. Not because I love you. My love for you actually should have nothing only to do with you. And if that's all that it is, it's shallow. If I only hug the people in the church that I love or welcome those whom I love because something about them tickles me and I like their personality, then I'm doing nothing different than any social club in the world. I should be hugging and loving you because God says you are the beloved. You are the beloved, holy and acceptable to God. You are His. I should be caring for you because He says He put His name on you. You belong to Him and you will be with Him for all eternity. We should be relishing in God's love and peace that He has given others. We should be doing everything that we can to love and support one another, to encourage one another in this, letting the word of His gospel of peace ring out through our lips as we sing, as we speak with one another, as we encourage one another in this walk, hoping that all of us make it safely home to be with Him. Lastly, he says in verse 17, that whatever you do in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then I put in my notes a little dot, 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 and he just adds one little phrase, giving thanks. As if the rest of it wasn't hard enough. Whatever you do in word or deed, this verse is all-encompassing. Everything about your life, it touches your mundane routines, the interruptions to your plans that inevitably happen, chance meetings, and I'm saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek, chance meetings and interactions that you have with people. It labels every activity in your day, everything that you do, eternally significant. Maybe some of you, if you were writing a calendar, would say, this is important, this is important, I can't believe I have to do this again, but I'll do it. All of it, eternally significant. Every bit of it has weight and glory because God has put His name upon you and He has invited you and brought you to be part of His mission so that anyone that you interact with, anyone that you see, you are to tell of the love and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That anyone you might see might be the person that He is choosing to bring into your life. He's using you to tell them about His Son. He's using you to do it in your interruptions, in chance meetings, in everything that happens, even in the mundane routines that you do every day, or that every Monday I've got to do this, or every Tuesday I have to do this. He is using those. He uses them for His glory. There's nothing that's insignificant in His world. Not only are we to do all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Think about that for a moment. I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus for His glory and for His sake. 
that should take some of the weight off of it for you. I'm not just doing this to earn a paycheck or to get through it or to have to grit my teeth and do it one more time. I'm doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. And that means he's giving me grace in the midst of it. I can do it. I can make it. He will provide for me. I'm not here on my own. He says everything that we do is to be in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he puts the qualifier on it. I think that that is like the, the, the ultimate. He says giving thanks. I'm to rejoice in whatever God gives me to do this day. And actually thinking about my life, there are absolutely no detours. Do you believe that about your life? Or do you sit back with regrets and think, this is not what I thought it would be. This is not how I thought these years of my life would go. Something has changed. Something turned. God moved. The Bible says, that's not possible. It's not possible. I want to end by illustrating this point with a brief uh, few paragraphs from a devotion, God's Design and Our Detours by John Piper. When he was rewriting an introduction to his book, Desiring God, they were updating the text. And he knew, he could see it on the page where he remembered an illustration he wanted to include in the introduction of this book. And so he went to the book and he's looking for it and he can see it. It's on the right side of the page. It's under this paragraph kind of at the middle. And he can't find it. And he said, God, why do you let us go on these detours? Why do you let us look for things knowing they're not there? Why do I spend my energy trying to find this when I, I, I know you know where it is? Why won't you show me where it is? Why do you let me look in the wrong place to find these things? And he says, while I was looking, I was riveted by the devotion on November the 30th. He said, as I read it, I said, this is why the Lord let me keep looking for a quote that was in the wrong place. Here was a story that perfectly illustrated to me that day in Jesus' kindness that nothing is wasted when we do it in Jesus' name. Nothing, not even looking for a quote in the wrong place. He said, here's what I read. In a home for mentally handicapped children, Catherine was nurtured for 20 years. The child had been mentally handicapped from her beginning and had never spoken a word, but only vegetated. She either gazed quietly over the walls or made distorted movements. To eat, to drink, to sleep, it was her whole life. She seemed not to participate at all in what happened around her, and a leg had to be amputated eventually. The staff wished Kathy well and hoped that the Lord would soon take her to himself. One day the doctor called the director to come quickly. Catherine was dying. When both entered the room, they could not believe their senses. Catherine was singing Christian hymns she had heard and had picked up through the years. Just those suitable for death. She repeated over and over again the German song, Where Does the Soul Find Its Fatherland, Its Rest? She sang for half an hour with a transfigured face, and then she passed away quietly is anything that is done in the name of Christ really wasted? Is he wasting your years? 
Is he wasting your energy or your family? He's not. Piper says, my frustration, my futile search for what I thought I needed was not wasted. Singing to those disabled children was not wasted. And your agonizing, unplanned detour is not a waste in his kingdom. Not if you look to the Lord for his unexpected work and do everything in his name. Expect that he's working in your family. Particularly expect that he's working this summer. Be still in the busy. Trust that he's moving. He is. Ask him to open your eyes to see it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we fall on our faces before you. You are holy, righteous, and good, and we see but a tip of the iceberg of your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to see your working. Help us to see your ways in the days that we have. We're not passing them by. You are moving us, carrying us along. And we thank you and we praise you for it. We know that you put life in our bodies today and that being here, even in your church, is not a mistake. We praise you and we thank you for the ways that you care for us and the many blessings that you pour on us in this life, things that sometimes we moan about and complain about. But in all of these things, you demonstrate your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be slow to speak and quick to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.